Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome back to The Stacks, your one-stop shop for all things books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is The Stacks Book Club, where we do a deep dive into one book. The book this week is The Unwinding of the Miracle by Julie Yip Williams. Therapist Lori Gottlieb, author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is back to help us discuss this moving memoir about life and death. There are no spoilers this week. For more information on everything we talk about on today's episode, click the link in the show notes. You can also find links to all of our social media accounts and much more in the show notes. If you love the Stacks and want even more, check out our Patreon page and join the Stacks Pack. That's our own community that gets you inside access to this show. You can join our virtual book club, which meets every other week to discuss the Stacks Book Club pick in detail through video chat. You can also get the inside scoop, find out guests in advance, and a lot more. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks and check it out. I want to say a quick thank you to our newest member of the Stacks Pack, Keandra Freeman. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and that you leave us a rating and a review. It goes a long way to helping this show reach new audiences. Okay, that's it for now. Let's dive into our conversation with me and Lori Gottlieb about The Unwinding of the Miracle by Julie Yip Williams. All right, everyone, we are back again today with Lori Gottlieb, author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a New York Times bestseller. We are talking today for the Stacks Book Club about The Unwinding of the Miracle, a memoir of life, death, and everything that comes after by Julie Yip Williams. Lori, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So we'll start where we kind of always start with our book conversations, which is just generally, what did you think of this book? I couldn't put this book down. Mm. Um, you know, when I started to read the book, I thought, oh, this is going to be really depressing because it's about a woman who's going through this diagnosis of cancer and, and she's a parent and I'm a parent and those are hard to read. Right, right. <laughs> um, but um, I wanted to know her in, in real life. Mm. Um, I, I thought she would be the kind of person I would choose as a friend. And that's what it feels like reading this book that you're going through this experience with a friend and you come to love her and care about her. She's funny. She says she's not PC. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not one Mm -hmm. of those books about like, and life is so beautiful and I'm just Mm -hmm. realizing it now. Um, she's, she's, she rails against her diagnosis. Um, she's, um, she's snarky. Um, and she's, 
you know, she talks about the reality of her marriage and, and what it's like being a parent and, you know, things people say to her. And, um, you know, I was just along for the ride from, from the get go. You were, I love that. So I came to this book. I feel like it was meant, I was meant to read this book only because a few years ago I had seen her on maybe CBS Sunday morning or something. We watched that show in our family and, I remember thinking like, oh, it's so interesting this woman's writing a book about this. And I remember her really thick glasses. And then I teach fitness and a few months ago or a few weeks ago, one of my writers, she has breast cancer right now. She's It's a treatable form of cancer, but she's a big reader. And she sent me a Facebook message and she said, have you read this yet? You have to read it. You have to talk about it on your show. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to read it. Like, I don't care. And then then you suggested it. And I was like, it can't possibly be the same book that Chira had just told me about a few weeks ago. So it felt like I was, you know, kind of like meant to read this book or that I like needed to get into my hands. And I really liked it because I liked that she, like you said, it was really upfront about the hard parts. And she does talk about the beautiful parts and she does talk about grace and, you know, dying in this, in a way that, you know, is she'll be proud to have died in that way and whatever. And she talks about that. But she also talks about like, I hate these people. I hate people who had what I had and got better. I hate people who are parents of young kids and have had cancer and are okay. And I hate like, and she talks about her jealousy and her rage and all of that stuff. And I just thought that that was really powerful because I think that in our society, we treat cancer, especially terminal cancer, like with, they've become saints. Yes. Like yes. it's like she's still a person and she still has all those feelings. And just because she has cancer, it doesn't make her any less of a person. And I think pretty early on, she says something that like life still happens. Like right. I still have to go to birthday parties and I still have to like go to the grocery store. And I've read a few other, I think someone referred to this as a death memoir once. One of my listeners was like, oh, I love death memoirs. I was like, I've never heard that. But I've read a few other death memoirs. And while they've all been really good, very few of them actually talk about, you know, because she was diagnosed and had cancer for like four years before she died. Well, when I think about um, When Breath Becomes Air, yes. which is another quote, yes, death, death memoir. memoir. Yeah. Um, you know, it's 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 different because here, you know, she talks about like the slutty second wife, yeah. you know, like what, yeah. who's, like who's, who's my husband going to marry yeah, exactly, when I die exactly. and I want to, you know, I want to make sure my kids are raised by, you know, right. someone that I approve of. And, right. Um, but what's so different about hers too is that she did not have an easy life leading mm-hmm. up to this. She mm-hmm. was, you know, born, uh, she was supposed to be, um, killed uh, right. when she was young because she had, um, cataracts and she was blind. Right. And her parents actually took her to someone who would like give her some kind of potion that would, that would kill her. Right. Um, and then he refused. Right. And this is because the grandmother had, had kind of ordered her birth, right. uh, her death. I mean, right. you know, and it's kind of like, wow, the fact that she survived that, right. right the fact that this person said, no, I'm not going to do this. And then, and then they had to like take a boat and escape and, and, and then the boat, you know, she almost died on the boat and then she gets here and then she goes to UCLA and she gets this surgery where she still is, is legally blind. So she like, can't, you know, um, but she becomes this, she goes to Harvard law school, you know? So she's like blind and she, even though she's blind, she goes to Harvard Law School. She becomes a, a corporate lawyer. She meets her husband there, the love of her life. Mm. Um, they have two kids. They have yeah. these young daughters. And then, boom, she's diagnosed with this. And it seems like she had escaped, all, you know, all these other things that that 
you know, could have derailed her life or killed her. Right. Um, didn't. And then this. Right. Yeah. And she, um, I guess I should say, we're like a few minutes in, I should say this. There's not really spoilers in this book. The book starts with her being like, if you're reading this, I'm dead. So that's in the first paragraph and everything else about her, about her blindness and everything you can, it's in the first few pages. So there aren't really spoilers in this book. So we're going to talk about it. If you haven't read it yet, that's okay. But we're going to talk freely about it. Yeah. I think that her history gives her a perspective on life and, and death, but also just like what is fair or right. I think that that's one of the big themes of this book is like she has had so many things that the rest of us would think like, that's so unfair. Like what a what a crappy hand to be dealt, I think is another way someone might say it. And yet still she finds a way to, to you know, go to Harvard Law School and be, you know, they talk in the book a few times about her treatment. It's like, that's going to cost $11,000 and it's fine. It's no big deal. We can do it. And I like, I'm like... <laughs> Like, what a luxury. Like, there's so many parts of her life that but are- But she so- started off dirt poor. Yeah, exactly. I like, mean, you have to understand yeah. that that's what's so interesting about her is that she, she every at every moment, you yeah. know, you feel like, well, that was, you know, I can't believe she overcame this. I can't believe she overcame that. Right. And so she basically overcame all of these things that, that you know, other people might have dealt with very differently. They might right. have felt like a victim or a martyr. Um, and she didn't at, at every- point, she said, I'm going to overcome this. Right. And when it came to the cancer, she really wrestles with that whole like warrior mm-hmm. metaphor that a lot of people use. She's mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm not a warrior. Right. Right. And, 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 you know, in, in my book, when I talk about this, this woman that I treated who was dying of cancer, she had the same reaction, which is like, I'm not a warrior. I'm just a normal person. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what makes it so relatable that you don't have to be dying of cancer to relate to Julie in this book. Right. Have you had other patients who have had cancer? Um, do they, do you often hear that pushback against the warrior or like war analogy that's so often or battle against cancer or fight against yeah, cancer? Because people around them say, well, you're going to beat this. And, right. you know, it's like they use all of these kind of, you know, military like right. analogies. And they're just like, you know, I have this appointment and now I got to go to chemo and now I'm going to have this surgery. And, you know, they take it one step at a time, but right. you can't help but think about, am I going to live through this? And right. what's going to happen to me? And even if I live through it, what will I be? What form of myself will I be after mm. the surgeries and the chemo? And I've been through all of this and how will I come out of this if I do come out of this? Right. And I feel like one of the things that I, that turns me off about that metaphor analogy, like the war battle thing, is that people who do die from cancer, it's not for lack of trying. And in fact, sometimes people try to the point of, right, where they're not living anymore. Right. You know, the treatments are horrendous. And they could have had, say, you know, another few months without the horrendous treatment. Right. But they chose the horrendous treatment and they lived maybe, I don't know, a little bit longer. Right. But was it worth it? Like what and, was the quality of life? And and sometimes it's not because they necessarily want to do it, but because their families are pushing mm-hmm. for it or the doctors are saying, but wait, there's this other thing right. and we recommend you do this. Right. And I think so many, you know, we talk about your husband being, being a physician, that we really need to think about quality of life and mm-hmm. help people to make a decision that's right for them. Not right. because just because we can give you this treatment doesn't mean you should do it. Right. Right. And what, what does it give At you? At what cost? Yeah. What, like how much, 
what is the cost analysis or whatever they say, cost, the cost benefit, benefit analysis. analysis. Yeah. Because I, I think that with that language around cancer, like the whole battle war thing, it does set it up as a win loss. And it's not, it's not really a fair fight. I don't think like, I don't necessarily think that people who get stage four colon cancer are, are fighting the same, you know, it's not the same battle. It's not a fight. Like you're trying to be healthy. And of course there is a sense of like a desire or a will to live, but that's not usually enough. You know, like it, it's not just about wanting to live. Like this is a disease that is destroying the insides of your body. Right. And she was saying, I want to show my daughters what it's like to die with grace. Yeah. Which means that she got to choose when was she going to stop treatment. Right. At what point was enough enough. Right. Um, and it wasn't that she didn't want to be around for her daughters. Right. She wanted more than anything in the world right. to be around for her daughters. And that's why she ended up doing a few more, like there are a few points in the book where she's like, I'm kind of ready to go now. And she's like, but I promised Josh, her husband, that I would, that I would stay. I would stay for as long as I could. And so I think that there is, in her story, there's a few, I think there's maybe two parts where she says, I could be done. Mm-hmm. I could be ready. And then she's like, you know, but I got these girls. And right. she even ba- she even deals with that. Like, how long can I do this and be in pain and suffering? And then there is a point where she's like, okay, thanks everyone. I gotta, I've gotta now live the rest of my life the best way that I can. And it doesn't involve a lot of this. Right. Other stuff. What does she want her girls to remember of her? Yeah. You know, that how do they want how does she want them to remember her? Um, and at a certain point she she needs to be human at mm-hmm, the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think this this question too of when you have a limited time, we all have a limited time. And that's right. what I think this book makes people think about is you don't need to be diagnosed with a terminal illness to realize that we all have a limited time here. Right. Or we shouldn't need to be. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, she, but she has this very, very limited time in which to impart all of the information, the lessons mm-hmm. that, that she wants her daughters to know about life that she won't be around to talk to them about, that we as parents in the course of our conversations with our kids, you know, we're like, yeah, well, you know, in, in day to day, we kind of, you know, sprinkle in little lessons <laughs> yeah. if, if we can. <laughs> right. Um, but she has to get it all in this book. Right. Right. And I mean, the other thing is I, this book made me think about like, what if she had been in a car accident? Yes. Like she could have just as easily died three years earlier from being in a, like, and I think we sometimes forget that too. Right. We think we have forever. We think we have forever. We forget that life has a hundred percent mortality rate. And most of us don't know when or how we're going to die. Right. And, and I think that that helps us live with more intention. Yeah. Um, that was why, um, you know, I included that story in my book about that patient who was dying because I think she made me think about, um, you know, when I wake up every day, am I, am I wasting time on things that I don't want to be spending my time doing? Right. I think it's a great question to ask ourselves. Yeah. I, I hear it said a lot. I think it came up in this book and I think it came up in your book also that like death being the proximity to death makes people feel more alive. It teaches you how to live. Yeah. Like it's a reminder of like, well, you're going to go one day. Have you done the things that you wanted to? And not so much like a bucket list, but like, are you, are you doing the things you want to be doing? Right. If this is it. It knocks you out of your complacency. Yeah. Um, Julie in my book, they're both named Julie. Which is so confusing confusing and interesting. I know. So (laughs) I, I, I had not heard of this book when I wrote my book. So, um, 
Julie in my book, the person who's dying of cancer, um, she said, once I got diagnosed with cancer, I noticed how much people plan that, you know, in three years we'll have a baby or Mm -hmm. I'll ask for that promotion or, you know, in two summers we'll take that trip or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever it is. And she said, what are people waiting for? Right. Right. I think that's so powerful. Like, what are we waiting for? I see that in the therapy room all the time where people are kind of, they try to plan out their lives in a certain way. And it's good to reflect on your life and and say, okay, here's what makes sense. But at the same time, so many people wait and wait and wait, and then they never do the things that they want to do. And, Mm. And not just in terms, like you were saying, of the bucket list, but also in terms of just like every day, are you wasting your, are you spending three hours on Twitter? Right. You know, like nothing wrong with Twitter, by the way, but um, you know, like, how are you spending your time? Are you connecting with others? Right. Um, that, that, that relationship that you wanted to repair with your friend or your sibling, you know, have you done that? Or, right. you know, what if one of you dies? How will you feel about that? Right. Yeah, man. One of the things that comes up a lot in Julie's book is this idea of hope. And she, at one point she calls it the hope industrial complex. She talks about hope, um, as like part of having cancer, not necessarily having hope, but like capital H hope, like, you know, her doctors and the, you know, you hear the percentages, which imply that there's a percent that you should hope, right? (laughs) Like that if you have a 90% chance of dying from this, that there's this 10% chance of hope, right? And I wonder what, she talks about how like it can lead to crushing defeats and it can be really devastating if you have a lot of hope, but at the same time, it's kind of impossible not to have hope. Can you talk at all about that? Like in your experience as a therapist, like how hope functions for people or with people or why it's important or, you know, kind of just generally hope is my question. (laughs) Yeah. And I think I can talk about it not in terms of death so much, but in terms of just, you know, living our daily lives, why we need hope. Um, and why hope can also sometimes be counterproductive. Yeah. Um, I think that a lot of times when people come to therapy, they, they maybe don't have hope, um, Mm. about a certain situation. Like I'm having trouble here. I don't know how this situation is going to change. Mm. Um, and sometimes they're hoping for the wrong things. And I think that in terms of Julie's book, you know, the hope wasn't, I'm going to beat this at a certain point. I'm going to, um, you know, live longer than I you know, then this cancer is going to let me live. Mm-hmm. Um, the hope was to hope for, can I live um, the kind of life I want to live in the time that I have? Mm-hmm. So I think we have to hope for the right things. Right. Um, and so many times people come in and they've lost hope because they haven't, they don't have the thing that they want, but maybe that thing is something they're not going to have. You know, sometimes maybe it is, and maybe they're going about it in the wrong way and therapy right. can help you with that too. But sometimes, um, people are hoping for the wrong things. And if they can hope for the right things, they will find a lot more fulfillment. Right. It's kind of like you have to get specific, just like, you know, when people do like goal setting, they say like, you have to set a goal, but then you have to also set like specific steps to get there yes. so that you're working towards something. Like you can't just be like, I hope I'm a billionaire. Like, right. okay, that's nice. Not super helpful. Or this like, I hope I can be happy. What does right. that mean? What does you that know? mean? Yeah. Like what is going to make you happy? And I'm a chronic list writer. You can see I have all these lists in I front do. of me right now. I'm, I'm a little intimidated I'm a by total them. list person, but I feel like that's one of the few things that keeps me you know, organized. So it's like when I have a goal, I will literally write a to-do list with checkboxes. Like, have I done all these things? You know, and it doesn't always work. I don't always achieve the goal. But like for me, I think that that's really helpful. And I wonder like in a faced against something like terminal cancer, 
I can understand how you might get unspecific in your hope too. Like if if the thing that you're hoping for seems insurmountable, you know? Well, right. So you can't, you can't hope for something that like, you know, this cancer is not going to kill me because it became very apparent that it would. Right. Um, but you can hope for other things. I hope to have a good day on Saturday with my husband and my daughters. Right. Um, I hope that I, you know, that Mm. I can not, um, you know, that I can, that I can die with, with, in a way that I want to and not in these nightmarish ways that I, you know, that I definitely don't want to. Right. Um, I think it's really about understanding what hope is. Sometimes hope can can blind people too. Right. Um, you know, I'm not talking about in terms of cancer. Right. But well, yes, in terms of cancer, actually. Um, where I think that that people, you know, they they want the miracle, which of course. Right. <laughs> um, right. But I mean, like even the Julie that I treated, not mm-hmm. the Julie in the book, um, that um, you know, at a certain point she was saying, like, so many people, they they almost want me to have hope for something that I can't have. And that was very devastating to her. It's like, that hurts me. It's painful. Every time they say like, you'll beat this. And she's like, no, I won't. You know, like I am actually going to die. And they'll say things to her like, have you gotten a second opinion? No, no, I didn't. I didn't think Um, to do that. You know, I didn't think to do that just because it was my death sentence. I just thought I'll just take that at face value. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about because I'm sure you have heard a lot, you hear a lot of people's frustrations, especially people who are ill or maybe going through grief. Maybe they've lost a family member or a loved one. What are the things that you have heard that have been helpful to say to someone in these situations? Because I know personally, I've been in situations where it's really hard to to be supportive? Like how, what's the right thing to say? So I wonder if you have any advice on that. Well, I learned all of this from my patient, Julie, okay. and there's a chapter in my book called what not to saying to what not to say to a dying person. <laughs> yes. That was a, the title of the book that she wanted to write one day. She's like, I right. should write a book like right. that. <laughs> um, and, and she talked about the unhelpful things, but she also talked about the helpful things and the helpful things were just, um, you know, just being there saying, you know, I love you, or I'm so sorry you're going through this, or how can I help? Um, you know, just sitting with the person in the reality of their situation as opposed to, well, you never know, and, right. you know, those kinds of things. Right, yeah. Um, you know, just people who were just in complete denial of her situation. It, was, she, it made her feel – she was. you know, cancer is a very isolating experience anyway. Right. But when people are denying the reality of your situation, it becomes even more isolating and lonely. When people cannot join you in the reality and say, oh, wow, this is really – I understand what you're – you know, I, I see what you're dealing with. Right. Um, I can't imagine what that's like, right? Yeah. Um, as opposed to, well, you know, what about this? Or my cousin did this right. and this worked. And it's like, well, that was your cousin. Right, right. Or like everything happens for a reason. Oh, like, that is the word. That is the thing people hate the most. I everything hate, happens I for a reason. Or even sometimes people will say like, you know, with the death of a child, um, which I really can't imagine, um, where people will say things like, well, you know, you're young enough to have another one. Ooh. Seriously, people Ooh. people said that that happened to a patient of mine. Someone no. said that to her. You're young enough to have another one, which of course she was glad that she was young enough sure, to have but another like, one. How dare you? But it's not a replacement child. It doesn't make up for the pain that this person will always feel at the loss of this child. Right. Um, and um, you know, it completely invalidates their the, the pain of their situation. It's like people say that to make themselves feel better. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make the other person feel better. It leaves the other person feeling worse yeah. and more alone and angry. Yeah. Um, but it makes the person saying it feel better somehow because it's so hard for us as a culture, I think, to talk about painful things and not be able to offer an antidote to the yeah. pain. Yeah. I think that I, I totally think that's what it is. It's like as a person witnessing someone else's pain, it's like you want to try to fix it or like make it feel better. Um, we, a few weeks ago, we talked about Cheryl Strayed's book, uh, Tiny Beautiful Things. Love that book. Love that book. But one of the things that she does so well is people will write to her about something terrible that's happened and she'll be like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Like she kind of starts from there and, you know, she gives her advice, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that's like really powerful. Um, and on that episode, when we talked about the book, I talked about my father who'd passed away and, um, you know, that experience for me obviously was really challenging and sad and, being on the receiving end of people's condolences and realizing that like 
people who say like he's in a better place. It's like, oh, great. That's a big fuck you to me. Thanks so much. Um, Sorry. Sorry he was so miserable here on earth with the rest of us, you know, like that kind of thing. But learning, like I had never thought about that phrase as being kind of, you know, flip and rude until I was experiencing it. And I think that oftentimes like we – don't think before we say a lot of these tropes or like, we're praying for you. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not religious. So why are you praying for me? I don't care about that. Like you're, that's all stuff for you. That's all for you. The person who's, who's green, who's trying to help. People don't know how to sit with you in your sadness. Right. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the things that when people come to therapy, they talk a lot about is, you know, how do you do that? And also, what happens even within a family, like people will like with your father, I don't know what your experience was, but sometimes people will have, if you have siblings, I don't know if you Mm -hmm. do, but they'll have different reactions to the same event. So, you know, someone's parent dies and the siblings had a different relationship with that person or feel differently about it, even if they both were very close with that person. Um, and so, you know, how can you be with another person in their experience as opposed to in your experience? Exactly. Yeah. One of the things, this is a piece of advice that I that I I felt as someone who was grieving that I try to carry on, which was when my father passed away, a lot of people, you know, they come around, they bring you food, they say they're sorry, whatever, for like the first month. And then you don't hear from a lot of people for a long time. So one of the things I always try to do is if I know someone has been grieving, of course, I'll reach out to them right away. But then like three months later, I'll just put a date in my calendar and I'll say like, call Lori mm-hmm. just to check in. And I won't even necessarily be like, Lori, how are you doing with this tragedy? But just to call and be like, hey, I was thinking about you. How are things? You know, and just making space for those people around you if they need you. Like that was something that a few of my friends did. They called me randomly or like sent me a text message being like, hey, you know, or like, here's this picture I found of you and your dad. Isn't it so great? And like little things like that where it's like, I'm sad anyways. So you're not making me more sad by telling me that you're thinking about my dad. It actually makes me feel a lot better that I'm not the only one who's sad. That's such a great point. People think that bringing it up will make will remind you as if you've forgotten right, about as the if person. You've forgotten. Exactly. Right? So it's like, oh, if I bring up her dad, she'll start thinking about her right. dad because of course she wasn't thinking about right. her dad because he's dead. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and it's like, no, she she, she misses was. him. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's one of the things, and I feel like I feel like all of that stuff, and it comes up in your book. Both Julie's talk about like you know, people and their response. And I think it's just a good thing to think about if you're not going through something so sad, like how can you be a good friend or support to someone in your life? Because everyone's going through something at some point, you know? Right. That's the human condition. Nobody is immune from struggle. Right. Right. <sighs> uh, <laughs> I'm so we overwhelmed. Some wine. I know, I know. I'm <laughs> We're like drinking water here. I'm, yeah, water and tea. We're no fun. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that Julie in this book talks about is jealousy. Yes, and I love it. I love it when she talks about I that because it. first of all, envy is such a universal mm-hmm. human experience, um, and people. It's one of the most taboo. You know, it's like. Even sadness that we're uncomfortable with right. um, is okay, but envy is like, what is up with that? Like, we want to, we want to avoid envy at all costs. It, it somehow is a value judgment on the person who's feeling envious, right? Um, whereas envy, by the way, is great. I, I always say this in therapy: is follow your envy. It tells you what you want, mm. and so I think it's envy is really important to acknowledge what you're envious of because it will help. It's like a compass; it will direct you to say, "Actually, I want that," and then you can take steps to say, "How can I get that? Mm. What can I do in my own life to get that?" So it's very informative. But she does talk about her envy, and she talks about 
you know, going to um, these birthday parties and, you know, people talking about whatever they're talking about and their problems. And she feels like um, she wishes those were her problems. Right. Um, it reminds me of, of the Julie in my book. Her husband um, came back from the gym one day and my Julie um, had been a marathon runner before she got mm. cancer. And she could see his muscles and her body was sort of wasting away. And she was like, you know, she was so jealous of the fact that he got to go to the gym and work out and have that really healthy, you know, muscular body. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think Julie in this book that we're talking about, um, you know, like all of the sort of problems that people are dealing with seem they pale in comparison to what she's dealing with. And she feels like she wants to say, like when they say, how are you? And what she actually says to them is, you know, fine, trying right. to, you know, get through it. And what she wants to say is like, fuck you. Can I say that? Right. Right? Yeah. Okay. I, swear all, I swear all the time. <laughs> no, no FAA. Um, you know, she, she wants to just be like, are you fucking kidding me? How right. am I? Right. Let's see. I have stage four colon cancer and my daughters are not going to get to see me in maybe a right. year. Right. How are you? <laughs> right. Right. Definitely been better. Thanks for asking. Yeah. You know? Ugh. Yeah. And she is specific in the book about her jealousy. Like there's a section where she's like, people I hate. She's like, I mm -hmm. hate the sl slutty second wife, you know, whoever she is. I hate so-and-so. I hate so-and-so. And then she says, but the the people that I hate the most are the people who have had this exact cancer that I have and have gotten rid of it. Yes. Like that that is where my jealousy is the most. Because she's like, I don't care if you had stage one cancer. Like everybody beats stage one cancer. <laughs> you know, she like kind of is like, you know, and she is funny in this book. She's very she's hilarious. She's very funny. She is hilarious. And yeah. she also what I love about this book is that, um, you know, when we talk about death memoirs, mm -hmm. um, what I love about it is this of all, and I, I've read several death memoirs, mm -hmm. yeah. um, if you want to call them that. Um, but what I love about this one specifically is that not only does it go into her very unique history and, right. and, and so, you know, there's just something very different about it. Um, but it also, um, it feels like you can relate to her as like the friend you want to hang out with. Right. Um, you know, she's not like overly earnest. Mm -hmm. She's not one of these people who's, you know, like, um, you know, has more sort of grace than the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, she, although she does have a lot of grace, yeah. um, she's just like someone that, again, I wish that I had been friends with her when she was alive. Right. She's kind of, I'm going to hang out with her. Yeah. And she is like slightly aspirational, but in an achievable way. Yes. You know, like I think, so I read When Breath Becomes Air. And I cried pretty hard. And I did not cry hard in this book. Um, oh, Julie's I book. did. You did. Oh. I think for me, why I wasn't I wasn't as emotional over the book is because she was a human to me. Yes. And so I felt like, well, she's dealing with human things and she is doing the thing that she wanted to do. And like, I don't feel sad for her because I feel like she's done She's she's doing what she wants to do. She's setting out to find a way to do to be at the end of her life gracefully and whatever. And for whatever reason, I felt for her, but I didn't feel I wasn't crushed or devastated. I felt like good, good for you, Julie. Like you did it. Like I'm well, proud did, of my she, friend. Right. Like, she kind did of. it. She did it. I think she had the kind of death that she set out to have. Right. And it feels very um like triumphant. Yeah, and in she a way. was on a journey 
towards it, which we were with her for. Like in the beginning, she talks about like that graceful kind of death that she wants. And then she goes into that rage jealousy phase for a while. And then she's like kind of okay. And then it all comes back and she's like trying to fix it. And it's like, I'm going with her on her journey. So when it does get to the end, which we all know is coming, I think that I was like, okay, like we did it, you and I together. <laughs> like, And I didn't feel as much sorrow as I have in other death memoirs. I felt a different, maybe like a satisfaction for her or with her. Yeah. Um, there were two parts that I, off the top of my head, where I remember just bawling though. Really? Um, Which two? What, one of them was um, when she writes the the letters to her daughter, which is mm -hmm. like very early on mm -hmm. in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and the other was she had to go, it was like something at the school where she was volunteering. Mm -hmm. She brings her daughter, I think her daughter was in like kindergarten and, uh, and she just loses it. Mm. She just loses it there. Like, I'm not going to be here next year. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to be able to volunteer in the classroom and come and do this special thing where the moms come and they do the, I'm going to cry right now. Yeah. And they do, and they do this, uh, you know, I think she, you know, she said something in the classroom where it's like a specific thing where the parent comes and does yeah. it. She's like, I'm not going to be here to do that. Yeah. And her knowledge that she's not going to be there the next year, that this is the last time that she's right. going to get to do that. And right. she just loses it. And I just lost it with That's her. That's so interesting. I mean, I definitely was affected by the book. I just didn't have the crying impulse, which is oftentimes rare for me anyways. I'm not a big book crier, but, yeah. but there were definitely parts like her letter to her husband towards the end. Yes. And then his response, his epilogue. Yeah. That was emotional. And there are definitely parts, the parts of the little girls, the daughter, Belle, who's like the savant <laughs> like to the afterlife. There were definitely moments like where she's like, come back well, mommy. And I was like, that got like, I got a little like waves of emotion, but I didn't have the same response as I did to when breath becomes air, where I feel like I was like, <laughs> and I don't know. Also to be fair, when I read when breath becomes air, my husband was finishing up his residency, mm. which was kind of a parallel. And so I think that there are other, other parts of that book that connected with me in different ways. But I think a lot of her honesty and like vulnerableness with her, less than desirable emotions, right? Envy, rage, all that stuff. I think that made me not feel as sad for her because I was like, this is a full human. And like, this is how the end of life sometimes goes. And I don't, I don't know why that connected with me in a way that took me out of sorrow, but I think that I felt more like proud of her. There is so much pride in her, I yeah. think. Um, I also think that hearing this from a woman, mm -hmm. you know, Breath Becomes AR was... Um, you know, it was, it was also a doctor. Right. Um, so it was, it was different. Yeah. Um, it was, um, you know, I think that there were so many things, so many taboos that she breaks yeah. in terms of what women are allowed to say yeah. and feel and believe about everything from grief to motherhood to marriage. Um, you know, to me, if you take out the death part of it, it would have been a fa fascinating memoir anyway. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's what, what sets this apart yeah. is that everything that she writes about, regardless of the cancer, would make this a fascinating memoir. Totally. Yeah. I mean, and she, her writing style is very approachable too. Like when you think about like when Breath Becomes Air, he was clearly like writing. It was more intellectual. Yeah. It was like about the writing because mm -hmm. he was really passionate about writing. And this book was like, well, this thing's happened to me. So let me, it was like almost like a journal. Right. And yet she's, she's 
a very skilled writer. She is, which she is, is astonishing because she's she's a lawyer. Right. I mean, she's that's what she is, right. and she never, um, you know, thought to pursue the arts because in her family, again, right. the expectations are you become. Uh, you go to graduate school and you become a you become a doctor or a lawyer and right. that's what you do right even if you're blind right right you know right um you know and they but the, what was interesting was her family expectations for her they were different she says like you know the reason that this infanticide was ordered for her was that they thought she will never get married and mm-hmm. that was like the worst thing that could happen was the family's going to have to support her for life right um right. And it was this very backward way of of life um and so then she comes to america and um she says you know i'm gonna i'm gonna support myself she didn't think that she was gonna get married and then she meets this like gorgeous successful dreamy guy yeah um who loves her dearly and um you know and she has this family and all seems like everything her parents had said you won't be able to have you won't be able to have a job you won't be able to have the husband, you won't be able to have children. Um, she has it all. Right. Um, and she goes to Antarctica. Yes. And before the traveling, she was solo traveling. Right. So she was this like, you know, adventurer and she would do the solo traveling while blind on these very difficult, almost dangerous trips before she was married to kind of prove to herself that she could do all of these things. Mm. So she's a fascinating person. Yeah. You know, and then when she gets cancer, you're learning all about these other parts of her life too. Right. Yeah. I think that's also what's really great about this memoir is because it's not, it, half of it is, um, chronological, but the other half is kind of all over the place. You know, like we start with her letter to her kids and then we go back to her parents, like, going to take her to be killed. And then we're kind of jumping around and we don't really learn about some parts of her life until the very end. And so I liked that too, because it was kind of like all coming together, which if the title is any indication, it was the unwinding of her miracle, right? Like that her life from the beginning was a miracle and it kind of is all unraveling as we go and she's unraveling her story to us. And I didn't mean to suggest that her writing wasn't great. It just was so different. It just it just feels like she's someone that you should know or that right. you do know or that you want to know in a way that – and like she takes us with her through her journey. So there is a se- acceptance that I felt like I had for her death that I, I don't know. I felt like she had done the things that she had set out to do. Obviously, her life was shorter than it should have right, been. Right. So she was in her forties. Right. She died. She died, yeah. she died. You know, really young. But as far as the con, like going in, if we know she only is going to live forty years, it felt like by the end she had done the or forty two years. She had done the things that she had told us that she wanted to do in that short amount of time kind of thing. I, I also think though that the message of the book was it still sucks. Yeah, no, totally sucks. You know, sucks. like, like it totally it sucks. sucks. And, and, and she doesn't, she's not afraid to say she's that. She's not afraid to say it. And she, yeah. You know, not like, oh, it was meant to be and it's my time. No. And no. no, 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 no. Um, it's cut short. Her life is cut off before it should be cut off. Well, right. But she, but she was so honest about that. And she, she, you know, and, and she had these young girls. Right. And I think she was what, like, 30, in her late 30s when she was diagnosed. 37. Okay. Yeah. And I think yeah. the baby, Belle, Isabel, was they were like, like two and four. Maybe? Yeah. She was like still a baby because I think she was, yeah, like five or six when the youngest one was five or six when Julie died. Mm hmm. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, that would make sense. But, you know, she's very honest with her kids about, you know, what was going on in, in an appropriate way. Right. Um, which I loved hearing about that too. Yeah. Yeah. Because she didn't, you know, it wasn't like mommy's, you know, these horrible things that people do. I say this as a therapist, um, 
around death, like, you know, mommy's going to go to sleep. It's like, no, no. <laughs> she's not sleeping. And then the kids think, well, if I go to sleep, does that mean I'm dead? You know, what does that mean? All these euphemisms that people right. use for death, which is very confusing to children. Right. So this is kind of a silly anecdote, but so my father was sick and he passed away. And shortly there, or sh- right before I think my dad passed away, my mom, their cat died. And the cat used to live in the basement because I'm allergic and my dad had a, a lung thing. So he couldn't have the cat here. Anyways. And I have this nephew who at the time was like six and after my dad passed away and the cat had passed away, he was over at the house. My mom was like, oh, can you go downstairs and get this thing? And he goes, no. And she's like, why not? He's like, I'm not going to the basement. That's where the people die. Oh my god! Because <laughs> he didn't like, re- I think because he just assumed that that was where <laughs> the cat lived. And so he like wouldn't go downstairs for like years. And like, my mom's moves out of that house since, but like he was too scared. We had to like take him down and be like, no, it's okay. Like not where dead people are. Like that's where he thought like heaven was or something. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah, and that's the know. thing that kids can get all of these. They'll they'll if if you don't give them the information, right. they'll come up with their own version of right. the story. Right. And she didn't want her kids to have to do that. Right. She wanted them to to know what was going on. Right. And then she's also left them this book for one day if they are ever ready for it. Yes. If they want, I mean, that's also kind of like a nice thing to have. If one day you're like, I wonder what my mom thought about me or about her cancer or about her life. Like you'd have that to at least have something to be like, well, she thought this was bullshit too. <laughs> like, <laughs> they'll, they'll know what, what the experience was like for her. They'll know right. what she was thinking and feeling as she was going through this. And they'll also know how hard it was for her mm-hmm. to leave them. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find in your work any sense of what's easier, a long terminal prolonged illness versus an all of a sudden accident kind of death on the people who survive? I think every death is different and every family is different. I think suicide is the hardest Mm. um, because I think there are so many questions. Right. Um, Hmm. You know, and I don't want to rank them. So when I say the hardest, you know, I, I, I will say it's very hard. It's very hard. um, Because I think that so many times with suicide, what happens is people wonder, you know, like, there are all these like woulda, coulda, shoulda, like what, oh, did I miss the signs or how did I miss the signs or how could I not know or, um, you know, what could I have done differently or everything takes on this weight. Like when the person who committed suicide said this, did it really mean this? Right. Even though maybe right. it didn't. Right. Yeah. That's so true. And then also kind of on that same line, like when it comes to grief, what have you found that is like healthy grieving? Like, if I put that kind of in air quotes because I know everyone's different, but like what are things that you see or that you suggest to people where you feel like it might help them or things that maybe people do that get in their way of grieving? I get a lot of Dear Therapist letters on this and, and I, I remember responding to one that kind of went viral because I was talking about how um, people think you're supposed to like get over your like move on. Right. We don't move on. We move forward mm-hmm. in our lives. Mm-hmm. But I think if you really loved someone that they live inside of you in a profound way, mm-hmm. um, you don't want to, um, you know, I think people feel like, well, we don't want to bring that up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? right. And it's like, but that person meant something right. to them. That right. person right. is meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that people want to kind of like pretend that the person doesn't exist anymore in a, in an emotional way for that person. And yet the person does. Right. Right. So I think let people, let people, you know, have a relationship to the person who died and also have a relationship to the living mm. and they can coexist. Yeah. 
That's so good. That's good advice. I like that. Um, let's see. I think I just have a few more kind of things. Unless there was anything, were there things that you... Well, I was going to say like yeah. when, when somebody dies, I think like let's say that... Um, you know, they're going to start dating again, right? Because yeah. their partner died. I right. think of like Julie in this book and her husband who, mm-hmm. you know, one day will probably meet someone and get married again. You know, people have all kinds of ideas about what's appropriate or when it's okay. Um, right. And it's like mm-hmm. you can you can still miss the person who died and love them and never stop loving them and love somebody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. Okay, so one of the things in this book that, and in these kind of death memoirs and in your book, um, when we talk about Julie in your book, I think that one of the things that I am drawn to in these kinds of books is that it gives me as an alive person, a well person, a chance to reflect on how I would want to do it. You know, and I think that it like it, it, this book gave me the space to be like, oh, I wonder if I would do that. I wonder if I would do that. I wonder how I would respond to that. And I think it, because we don't talk about death and illness so much, um, on a personal level, like there's a lot of talk about cancer in society, but there's not really a lot of talk about having cancer and living with cancer or ultimately dying from cancer. And I think that like these books are really important or they've been important in my life because it's given me time to reflect. And I don't think we reflect on our own deaths enough. That's true. I also think that it helps us reflect on our lives. Yeah. Um, you know, how, how would I, what would I do in that situation? Definitely. I think it gives us the space to start to think about that, Mm -hmm. even though I don't think you can really know until you're there. Of course not. Um, but I also think that, um, that what these books do and why people read them is that it heightens our sense of the limited time that we have, which is a good thing, not a depressing thing. Right. It, it helps us to say, how do I want to live? Right. And if you're not thinking about that, you're kind of in an early death anyway. Right. You're like right? In you're a not really space. living. Yeah. This book also, I did go and like write down a few things for a bucket list for myself because I was like, I don't really have a bucket list. And so I did put Antarctica down. And last night I was out to dinner with my husband and I was like, so I think we might talk about bucket list tomorrow on the show. What's on yours? And he looks at me and he goes, well, this is kind of dumb, I guess, but like Antarctica. And I was like, that's on by. We have to go. <laughs> the first thing he said was Antarctica. And then we came up with like Wimbledon. We both wanted to go to Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to meet Barack Obama. And he was like, well, that's not really like in your control. I was like, no, I would call everyone I know and be like, someone please get me to Barack Obama. Like that would be on mine. Do you have anything on yours? A bucket list? Like things as opposed to like ways to live more trivial things. <laughs> yeah. It, well, I think when I was writing my book, that was why I couldn't write, you know, the happiness book mm. was I really wanted to make sure that I was kind of living the way I want to live because mm-hmm. yeah, you could get hit by a bus, you know, right. in any moment. Um, and I think about this as I was traveling, I know this sounds paranoid, but as I was traveling for book tour, you know, when there would be like really bad turbulence mm. on the plane and with all this Boeing stuff that's going on, that's so scary. Um, you know, you just don't know. You just don't yeah. know. And so I think that um, I don't have a bucket list in the sense of I want to do X, Y, and Z. Um, but I do know that every day I think about how do I want, what I want to do today. Mm, that's good. That's good. Mine was <laughs> much more silly stuff. But it's not silly. I mean, I, 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 I can understand the appeal yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd never been a bucket list person. I've always thought that they were kind of like, well, I don't know, you do the things you want to do and it's more important like how you're living day to day. But then I was like, 
guess if I got really sick, I would want to go to Antarctica. Like, because I'm but, close. But, but don't, but don't wait till you get really sick. <laughs> no, I know. Well, now I think we're gonna go since we both. I didn't know that I wanted to go until I heard her talking about it, and then I realized my husband has been to all six other continents, and I've been to five, so we're close. Because mm-hmm. he was saying last night, he was like, "Well, if I'd been to only two, I don't know if I have to go to Antarctica. Like, I might want to go to Asia instead or something, you know." But I, I think too, what it's done though for me is that I think about just yesterday. Um, you know, we were watching that my son and I were watching the NBA mm-hmm. um, finals and just really luxuriating in those moments. Mm-hmm. It sounds so cheesy when mm-hmm. I say it. Yeah. But just to be there and say, God, you know, he's going to like leave for college one day. And mm. then, you know, like just the, knowing that we have these moments and just to really be present, like yeah. not being on your phone, um, not thinking about the 10 other things you actually quote unquote should be doing right, right now. Right. Um, but just going, Oh, I'm right exactly where I need to be. And I know, I'm so hard enjoying too. this, but it, but it Doesn't feels different. The experience yeah. feels so different. Yeah. It's like you just, you luxuriate in those moments. And I think that it makes you enjoy life so much more. Right. I have to say, I love birthdays. And I think that's one of the reasons I love birthdays. I've always loved them, even from before I could figure out why. But I think I love birthdays because it's like you are celebrating another person's life. And it's a time to reflect on like, we're still here. I love birthdays for that love reason birthdays. too. And I know like it doesn't have to be a big thing. I like to make a big deal of my birthday because I – What do you do? I don't know. This year we're going to go – I'm going to go home to the Bay Area. So this is my 33rd birthday is this year. And on my 13th birthday, I went to a Giants baseball game. They're my favorite. And then I went to this restaurant called the House of Prime Rib in San Francisco. And this year, out of nowhere, I was like, I really want to go to a baseball game for my birthday. And I want to go to the House of Prime Rib. And then I was like, wait, I'm going to have a 20th anniversary of my 13th birthday this year. And then we're going to have a pizza party at my brother's house. I'm I love a whole that. weekend. Um, but I, people make fun of me because I'm like, have a birthday weekend and I don't care because I think, you know, my dad used to always say, well, it beats the alternative, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, you're dead. You know, like you can, people still might celebrate your birthday here and there if you've passed on, but like you're here, you might as well celebrate it. It's a day about you. You get to enjoy it. You get to tell people, people get to call you and tell you that they love you and they hope you're having a good day and they wish for you to have good things in the next year. And you get to think like, let me look back on this last year of my life. Like we, in our family, we play a little game where it's like, what are, what are your three highlights of the last year? Oh, I love that. Yeah. And it's just like a fun way to reflect. And I think that like, aside from reading a book like this, it's one of the few times people really take to reflect on their life. Yeah. And it, and, it, and it helps us to, um, you know, to celebrate life, yeah. you know, to celebrate not just on your birthday, but right. I think just to celebrate the fact that, you know, we're here so many times we can go through our days. We have a choice, right? right. Like, oh, the traffic or, oh, this, or, oh, this person did this, or this didn't happen or whatever it is. Right. Um, yeah. You can, you can focus on that or you can focus on the things that were great that day. Right. And I, they can be like, you know, a six. It doesn't have right. to be like a ten. Right. Right. Um, but just to really, I, I think we we don't notice how much we skew our, um, you know, how we look at our days toward the things that didn't work out, right? Versus the things that were really great that seem really mundane, right? But those mundane things we need to pay attention to. Totally. I think in Julie's book she says you know, youth is wasted on the young. And she says, life is wasted on the living. She also has, this just reminded me, she said this great thing about like how she notices that like unloading the dishwasher, like just the mundane things of going through life, going to Costco, unloading the dishwasher, like all those things. She's like, I get to do that. Yeah. 
And we don't notice that we're alive and we get to do that. Right, right. And it's just like a shift in thinking. Um, a while back on the show, we had Joe Piazza on. She's an author. And she was talking about how she's actively making this choice in her life to not focus on her anxiety or her issues. Like that by saying, oh my God, I'm so anxious right now that you're validating this thing. And she's like, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I'm anxious about like giving a speech, but like, am I really anxious about giving a speech? Not really. As soon as I get up there, like I'll be okay. And that she like, that there's some kind of pleasure, like, you know, there's these necklaces now that say like anxiety and like, it's like a trendy thing to be anxious. And like, I definitely am, I do have an anxious personality. Like a lot of energy goes around inside of me, but just consciously being like, I'm just feeling these things right now. And like, that's okay. I always say in therapy that feelings are like the weather. They blow in, they blow Mm. out. Um, And I think sometimes people can get so stuck in a feeling that they feel like it's going to be there forever, right. but it's not. It is like the weather. It's like right. it's going to change. The weather changes and that feeling will come back because right. the weather, you know, it comes, it comes back, back too. Yeah, yeah. That's so good. My boss says feelings aren't facts, mm-hmm. which I like sometimes except for when he's annoying me about it when I'm like, I just feel like no one's listening to me and he'll be like, feelings aren't facts. I'm like, okay, well, you're not listening to me still. <laughs> Why are you minimizing me? Right. But so he's, he's misusing that. Yeah. What it means, feelings aren't facts, right. means that um, just because you feel that way doesn't mean that your perception right. of like why someone did something is is the reason that they did right. it. Right. Um, but your feelings are real. Your feelings are real. They're just not always a hundred percent truthful to the experience. To somebody else's to, experience. To the greater experience. Like that there's different sides to the story. Right. right. Totally. But <laughs> I like it when he says it most of the times, except for when he says it to me like that. And I'm like, well, you know what? Thanks for your help. Well, a, a good example of that is like when someone's really depressed and they're feeling is like, my life will never get better. Mm. That's how you feel in that moment. Um, but that's also part of the depression. Depression mm-hmm. distorts your thinking. Right. This book is good because it brings up all these things. It makes you think. It, makes it really you think makes think about you think. all these things. Okay. So the last little thing we'll do is just talk about the title and the cover. What did you think of both or either? Oh, um, so – I love the title mm-hmm. because she talks in the very beginning about how it's a miracle that she was even alive at 37 mm-hmm. when she got mm-hmm. diagnosed, given right. everything that happened right. with her. And it was the, and she talks about life being a miracle and not in this kind of like, you know, um, I would say the way that feels fake, mm-hmm. but she's talking about that it, it's a miracle, not only that she's alive, but it's a miracle that any of us are ever born and that we make it into adulthood. Right, it right. kind of is a miracle. Right. Um, and so I, she talks about the unwinding of the miracle. I think that's a perfect title for the book. And um, it is a memoir of life and death um, and everything that comes after maybe in the sense of what will come for her family mm-hmm. and what comes for the reader after. Yeah. So I, I really like the title um, what did you think of the title? I really like the title. Well, actually, let me go back. When I first saw the title, I thought I didn't like it. Like, I didn't feel like it captured anything in me. I was like, I don't want to read that book. I'm not interested in that. And then reading it, it makes so much sense because she does start with that framework of like, miracle, life is a miracle. And like, my life specifically is a miracle. The miracle that I'm here, yeah. that I've made it to even write this book is a miracle. Um, so I liked that. And then, you know, towards the end, she refers back to this unwinding of the miracle. And like I said before, it's like the way that the book is structured, it is this kind of unwinding of her whole life and we're learning bits and pieces. And just like how in your own life, something might happen when you're seven and you don't learn about it till you're 37. Yes. You know, and that's that also that same unwinding. It's like, if you think of your life as being all these different threads and pieces and the people around you's threads and pieces come in and it kind of, you know, so I, I do like it now having read the book, but it didn't grab me 
when I first heard it. I agree um, because I it wasn't you know there's certain titles that really grab me and yeah. then I read the book and I'm disappointed in the book. Totally, I would much prefer to be in this situation, <laughs> yeah. which is where the title didn't grab me at all until I started reading the book. Yeah, and once I read it, I thought this is the perfect title totally. for this book, and it and it actually made the book more moving having that title. Yeah, I agree. And then as far as the cover, I like the thread that makes the M. Like I like that darker blue line, but the color of the blue in the background is too is too. Sad for me. It's not the... I feel like she needs a better blue because she is so much more vibrant. I think I saw online somewhere... I'm not sure if I saw it. Maybe it was just the the, the way that colors appear on my screen. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it wasn't that. I think it was more of like a yellowy beige. Oh. Um, I don't know. Um, you know, like an earlier version of yeah. it. Um, it could have just been the way that colors right. appear on my screen. Um, yeah, it's a little bit muted. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't mind it. Um, I, I love the, I love the way that they have the thread yeah. going around because that's exactly the unwinding. Yes, totally. Um, I love that it's very simple. Um, I think the thread is really vibrant. Yeah, the I way love it's the not thread. not just the color, but like the, the actual the curves yeah. and the movement to it. It has a lot of movement. Totally, I agree. I love the thread. And I love the color of the thread. I just don't love the background. I don't know. Mm. I, but maybe it's just because I'm, it makes me sad, kind of. <laughs> I don't know. Does it? Kind That's of. funny. You know, I thought the cover, when I saw the cover of my book, which mm-hmm. also has like sort of a more like muted background, um, I wasn't crazy about it. Really? I love your blue. I think your blue is so bright and beautiful. Well, good. I'm glad. Because your I blue was... is the thread blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also felt like, I don't know, I felt like there was something sad about the colors. Hmm. And I'm like, my book isn't sad. I mean, it's 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 funny and it, it does have sad moments, but it's like, I don't know, to me it like read sad. It's funny That's how- so interesting. And when I when I look at Julie's book, it doesn't read sad to me. That's so interesting. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Because I think your book, I thought your book was going to be more funny because I thought your cover was like kind of bright and like fun. Well, I love the the the, the um, Kleenex box. I, I love the Kleenex box, but I also love the writing, yeah. the way that like the yeah. font. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love the font on so your book. That yeah. gives you like the sense that it's going to be funny. Yeah. Um, but I mean, your book is funny. Yeah, but it, yeah. your book was more profound and sad in parts than I thought that it would be based on the cover. And this book was a, a little bit more vibrant and fun. Yes. Than I thought it would be based on the cover. Yeah. On Julie's book, you don't get the, you, it doesn't tell you that it's going to be vibrant yeah, and fun. You don't get her um, humor on the cover. You don't. You don't. But I, I don't know. I, I feel like that's okay. That's okay. I think it would be a little inappropriate if her cover was like, well, that's right. Hilarious. Like, <laughs> I'd be like, um, read this funny book about colon cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I really like it. I, I, I think also just that, that her writing, um, you know, as a writer, I will say that, it is so hard to make good writing feel conversational. Yeah. Like it is so hard to be conversational in your writing mm-hmm. and make it sound authentic. Mm-hmm. And Julie, you feel like she's just talking to you. She's mm-hmm. talking to you. That is mastery, yeah. what she does. Yeah. she It is really well done. That simplicity and like that ability to kind of edit yourself. To be able to tell a story that feels like she's just talking to you yeah. and she's talking to you in this very personal, intimate way, mm-hmm. like you're the only reader she's talking to, right. um, that that takes so much mastery right. of the craft. Right. And I, I will say she's a brilliant writer. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of why it almost felt like a diary entry. Yeah. There are a few times when I took notes where I was like, was this her diary? Because she's even talking about things chronologically. Like she talks about like, this happened today and I feel this right now. Mm-hmm. And I was like- There's Maybe. that immediacy. Yeah, totally. Um, 
Well, that's all that I have for this book for today. Do you have anything you wanted to add or? Just everybody should read it. Yeah, read it. If you haven't read it yet, you should read it. If you have read it, don't you agree that other people should? Read I almost, it? I yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like it's, it's when I, when I recommend books to people, mm-hmm. you never know. You know, sometimes I know the person well, so I know what they're going right, to like. Right. Other times, I feel like if I were just generally recommending books, I tend not to recommend something that I think might be extremely heavy. Mm-hmm. But because this is so funny, mm-hmm. um, and and heartbreaking, right? Um. I just feel like everybody, male, female, uh, you right. know, person interested in in quote unquote death memoirs, right. people who don't like death memoirs at all. Right. Um, I just feel like it's a book that just speaks to everybody. Totally. And like humanity and life and all of that and everything that comes after. Um, well, Lori, thank you so much for being here. You guys can get Lori's book. Maybe you should talk to someone wherever you get your books. It's out in the world. Just going to throw this out here again. It's a New York Times bestseller because that's really cool. So congratulations to you and thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much. It's been so fun. And we will see you guys in the stacks. All right. That does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you to Lori Gottlieb for joining us. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join The Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show and join our virtual book club, go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>